began in the book of Matthew a few weeks back, and we are continuing. We uh, move into chapter 2 this morning, uh, looking at verses 1 through 12, which, um, as many of you know and as many of you will see, is uh, another very familiar story. Again, that's Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. That can be found on page number 1,497 of your pew Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. My father um, grew up in the Bay Area. He was raised in an Irish Catholic family that may have been Irish, but certainly was not Catholic. Uh, My grandparents both completely rejected any idea of God or of religion. Um, By the time my dad was 30 years old, he had squandered a career in the railroad. Um, His first marriage lasted approximately 10 days and had recently ended. And he also had a habit of binge drinking and wrecking cars. Um, And so, in the midst of that, he reflected on his life, and he prayed a simple prayer. He he said, God, if you're real, would you reveal yourself to me? Uh, So it wasn't long after that, he moved to Modesto, uh, chasing after a girl that he had met when he was in Stockton visiting his brother, and he took a job at a car dealership in Modesto. Uh, A man came onto the lot one day, and asked my dad if he was a Christian, which my dad thought was a very strange question, and so my dad said no. And the man said to him, well, I'd like you to come to church, maybe. Um, And so he invited him to First Baptist Church in Modesto, which is now called Cross Point. Uh, And so my dad went. (laughs) And uh, 
he said after the service that all he remembers was that they were asking for money. Um, and, uh, but then he felt compelled to, to stick around. Uh, and it was very awkward and uncomfortable for him. And he didn't really know why he was sticking around. He just knew that if he left, he probably would never come back. Uh, thankfully, one of the associate pastors noticed him and came up to him and, you know, struck up a conversation and, and realized that my dad wasn't a believer. And, um, and so he told him that he should go to a Sunday school class that was going to take place that day after uh, the service. And so my dad went. And when he went, um, somebody there shared with him that God loves sinners uh, through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And my dad realized that Jesus is God. And then my dad realized that God had answered his prayer and that God had revealed himself to my dad in the person of Jesus Christ. And I think that is a very remarkable story. It's almost um, improbable that a man raised in a home like that and having lived a life like that would be led to, to know the Lord and to, and to place his faith in Christ and Christ alone. Um, but I'm very grateful that, that that story is true and that that happened. But as wonderful as that story is, we all know stories that are quite the opposite. We know stories of friends and of family who were baptized in the church, raised in the church, went to Christian school, and yet have walked away from the faith. So how is it that God miraculously calls people to himself from literally out of nowhere, while those who are surrounded by his grace their entire lives reject it? In our passage today, we're told of another improbable story about a group of men who were the first to know of Jesus and who were the first to treat him as the king that he really is. Magi, uh, strictly speaking, were magicians. Um, it's sometimes translated wise men, but the, the, the most literal translation is magicians. Uh, they were not kings in spite of uh, what we might have learned from a popular Christmas song. They were part of the educated class of their time. Uh, the good ones would have been truly uh, seeking knowledge by looking at the stars. They would have been really trying to understand dreams instead of uh, pretending to know what dreams meant. Uh, they were like scientists trying to figure out this world and why things worked the way that they did. Uh, there were bad magis as well. They would have been more like uh, palm readers or fortune tellers of our day who used their knowledge and their uh, power to take advantage of people uh, for financial gain. But these magi here uh, seem like they were the good kind. Think of them more as astronomers rather than astrologers. When they got to Jerusalem, they asked in verse 2, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So somehow, uh, they were studying the stars and they recognized his star. Which makes you wonder, what was this star? How, how did they know 
that this particular star was going to lead them to the king of the Jews. Uh, a lot of speculation has been offered as to the nature of this star. Some people say that it was the planets that had aligned. Others say that it was Halley's Comet. Uh, some suggest that it was a nova. Uh, the problem, there's problems with every single one of those suggestions, especially when we get to chapter 9, or sorry, verse 9, when uh, the star appears again. <laughs> And it leads them right to the home where Jesus is staying. And you kind of get the sense that this is something supernatural. But how do they know that it was his star? Again, we we don't really know for sure. Uh, The Magi are likely from Babylon, because in Babylon there was still a a pretty substantial Jewish population. Um, along with Jewish writings, which would explain how they came to know that there even was going to be a a, a king of the Jews. But the Old Testament actually says very little about the Messiah and a star. Uh, The closest that we get is in uh, Numbers chapter 24, where Balaam is prophesying against, against Moab. And we read this, it says, A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. That's, uh, that's not much to go on. <laughs> but it gets even worse because the Old Testament doesn't really commend stargazing either. Isaiah writes to the people of Israel and he says, All the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what's coming upon you. All of them go on in their air. There is not one that can save you. So how did the Magi, how did they come to know these things? Because God in his grace revealed himself through their stargazing. God opened up their minds somehow to understand that the star that they sky, the star, star that they saw in the sky meant that the king of the Jews had been born. God opened up their minds to see that this king was worth spending months and probably years traveling at great expense across an entire desert to come, to fall at his feet, and to worship him. A large caravan of Babylonians would not have gone unnoticed at the city gate of Jerusalem or on the streets of Jerusalem, especially a large caravan of Babylonians asking about this newborn king of the Jews that no one had ever heard of yet. And as soon as they started asking about the newborn king, uh, they would have gone from being a relatively curious group to uh, a concerning group because no one in Jerusalem seemed to to know anything about a newborn king. And the current king, if you could call him that, uh, was Herod the Great, who was only half Jewish and had come to power because he possessed great political skill and he had gained the confidence of the Romans. Uh, He also had a reputation for being paranoid and killing people who crossed him, including his own family. So the last thing that the average person in Jerusalem wanted was Herod worried that there was some new king 
with a rightful claim to his throne. Which is why Matthew tells us in verse 3 that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So here we go. A group of magi from Babylon knew Jesus had been born, spent great resources just to come and see him, and yet the people of Jerusalem, who were only five miles away from Bethlehem where he was born, had no idea and could care less. In fact, it seems that they were more concerned with how Herod was going to react than looking in to see if this were even true. And it seems like Herod only cares because he takes any potential threat to his power seriously. And so Herod has the wise men brought to him. Uh, He has the the chief priests come, who would have been the liberal religious scholars of the time. And then he has the uh, teachers of the law come, who would have been the conservative religious scholars of the time. And he's trying to find out, okay, well, where does the Bible say that this uh, king of the Jews is going to be born? (laughs) And they both agreed, which means it must be true. And they actually pointed to chapter and verse, he was going to be born in Bethlehem in Judea. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they didn't go. Here these men are, all the way from Babylon, led by a star and a vague understanding that a Jewish king was going to be born, and yet the priests and the teachers of the law, who knew the scriptures upside down and inside out, and were only five miles away from Bethlehem, didn't care enough to go. And Herod cares too much, right? Because if Jesus really is the newborn king of the Jews sent from God, then there's nothing Herod's going to be able to do to stop him. But if he's just a baby in Bethlehem and and these uh, wise men from the east are confused, then who cares? But Herod does care. And so he manages to convince the Magi that he's just as interested in worshiping the newborn king as they are. And we know this because later God has to send a dream to the Magi to convince them not to go back and tell Herod about Jesus. And then Herod sends them off to Bethlehem. And then when they head to Bethlehem, we read this. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. You see, the the picture we get here is that when the star first appeared in the east, they knew what that star meant. And so we don't know where the star appeared in the sky. We don't know how long the star stayed in the sky. We just know that when they saw the star, they knew that the newborn king of the Jews had been born. And so they went to Jerusalem, which is where you go to find the newborn king of the Jews, right? The capital city. And so they may have not seen the star except for one day. And then they're on their way to Bethlehem. And all of a sudden, the star's back in the sky. And we're told that they were overjoyed. Because then the star led them right to the place where Jesus was. 
You see, sometimes in our walk of faith, things are dark. And we're doing the best to trust God based on the information that he's given us. And like the Magi here, he gives us his word to guide us. But there will come a time when our path is lit up again. And there's great joy in that moment for those who have been faithful in the darkness. And then they see Jesus. Verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is uh, long past the major, manger scene. Um, Mary and Joseph have moved into a home. It's probably a small, humble home. It's certainly not a palace fit for a king. And yet the Magi don't question any of that. None of that keeps these men from falling at his feet and giving him incredibly expensive gifts. So the fact that God entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ to save his people from their sins, that's established in chapter 1 of Matthew. And then here in chapter 2, we immediately see how humans respond to him. And what we see is this. We see the Magi, who are foreigners. They have no cultural or social reason or motivation to care anything about what happens in Jerusalem. The information they have to go on is minimal at best and probably not even coming from Scripture completely. And then when they get to Jerusalem, no one there cares or knows anything about the king, right? And then they still don't doubt. And then when they meet the king, he's a poor carpenter's son. That doesn't throw them off either. Sometimes we hear people ask the question, well, if God is there, why doesn't he make himself more obvious? The scriptures say this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Paul says this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So there's two ways of looking at this. One is the sincere prayer that my father prayed. God, if you're there, reveal yourself to me. That's a prayer of faith, seeking understanding. The other way of looking at it is that since God hasn't made himself more obvious, I'm free from any obligation to him. See, this is the difference, really, between belief and unbelief. If we believe God will lead us to himself, he will keep us on the journey of faith toward him in spite of the difficulty of the journey. In spite of the cost to ourselves, he will keep us on the journey even when what we're doing makes no sense to the watching world. Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine what uh, 
the friends of these magi thought when they were taken off on their journey to go to Jerusalem. They thought they were nuts. He will reveal himself to us through whatever makes sense to us. He won't leave us there. Like the Magi, he will lead us to his people. He will lead us to his written word. Notice, it's the written word of God that actually tells them exactly where Jesus is going to be. But if we don't believe, if we don't believe, it won't matter if we were raised as one of God's people. If we don't believe, we'll be like the people of Jerusalem and King Herod, more worried about what Jesus is going to cost us than coming to him and bowing before him. Or we'll be like the chief priests and the teachers of the law. We'll dismiss a word from God if it doesn't line up with our preconceived ideas of who we think God is. But what's really interesting about this story is that the people who believe are not part of God's covenant community And the people who don't believe are part of God's covenant community. The people who seek Jesus based on a sliver of knowledge and then find him and worship him are from the nations. And the people who fear him being king and hate him and disregard him are his very own people who should have been looking for him and should have known way more than these magicians from the East about him being there. So this story, what it does is it introduces another theme in the book of Matthew and it it builds on one that we've already been introduced to. Uh, The theme that it builds on is the theme of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. And the Old Testament predicted that God's people would grow to include people from all nations. And so it's appropriate then that the very first people that come and find him are people from the nations. Isaiah chapter 65 verse 1 says, this is God speaking, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I. Here am I. The truth is, is that it's easy to become so familiar with God and with church and with our church community that we actually forget how great it is to know Jesus. It's so easy to imagine that our spiritual checklist is all filled up because we think we know God's word pretty well, we believe all the right doctrines, and this is especially easy if we've been born into the church, and all our family is in the church. And when this happens, the concerns of the world can take over our hearts, and we will become like the people of Jerusalem, more concerned with our comfort than seeking our Savior, or we'll become like King Herod, more concerned with wealth and power than bowing before the one who has all the wealth and all the power. Or we'll be like the chief priests, The teachers of the law, smug and filled with spiritual pride, unmoved by the presence of Jesus. And the worst part is that can happen inside the heart of someone who is one of God's covenant people. 
And that's the theme that Matthew introduces here, the, the theme of Israel rejecting their Messiah. And this theme is going to play out through the entire book of Matthew until eventually Israel asks the Romans to hang Jesus on a Roman cross. But he is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. He's the long-awaited king. He's the true Messiah. He's the anointed one of Israel. He came to save his people from their sins. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And yet he presents himself in such an ordinary way. I think one of the things that we've got to take home from this passage is that we, as God's people, must remember to look for the glory in the ordinary. Uh, Richard Wormbrand, I hope I'm saying his last name right, uh, was a Romanian Jew who converted to Christianity and then became a Lutheran pastor. He uh, suffered during World War II. Now, his wife's family was killed in a Nazi concentration camp, and then he was beaten and imprisoned several times uh, by the Romanian government that was a totalitarian government until he and his family left Romania in 1965. When he left, he wrote a book called Tortured for Christ, and he started a group that you might be more familiar with called Voice of the Martyrs. Um, Here's what he said about what he discovered about Christians during that time. He said there were two kinds of Christians, those who sincerely believe in God and those who just as sincerely believe that they believe. You can tell them apart by their actions and decisive moments. And a decisive moment doesn't just happen when a totalitarian regime comes and starts to take away our rights and persecute us. A decisive moment is when everything seems fine. The world is going on as normal and nothing is out of the ordinary and we're so caught up with our lives and our hopes and our dreams and our desires for this world that we miss it. When God fulfills his word by sending his own son and drawing the nations to himself to worship him. Because something so glorious seems so ordinary. And the truth is, we are all guilty of this. We're all guilty of getting caught up in our own little world and missing the wonder of all that God is doing in the world to work out his wonderful plan of saving sinners from their sin. We're all guilty of associating the ordinariness of how God works so much of the time with God, as if he's ordinary. So many of us, so many times, would so easily walk in on Joseph and Mary and see nothing but a mom and her baby. But our hope is not in our ability to come awake to all that God is doing in the world. Our hope is not in our ability to pull ourselves away from the distractions of this world and all the things about this world that seem to matter to us too much. Our hope is in a God who is in control of everything and can meet us even in the things that we are distracted by. Our hope is in a God who can find us with the least bit of knowledge about him and can capture our hearts with his love and his mercy and his grace, and can give us a vision for himself that he plants so deeply within us that nothing, not even 500 miles of desert, 
can keep us from seeking after him. Our hope is in a God whose love is not just for one kind of people, but every kind of person, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, who glorifies himself by saving the least expected person, the most sinful person, and yes, even saving people who grow up in the church and can be most blinded by the ordinariness of Jesus because we are so familiar with him. Our hope is in a God who creates devotion in our cold hearts, and opens our eyes to see the glory of his son in a baby who was the son of a poor carpenter being held by his mom in a humble home in a small town. Our hope is in a God who is able to create such faith in us that we can see the beauty of Christ and who he is and can make us willing to just give him the most costly gifts, right? To truly live our lives as a living sacrifice, not as a demand or as a way of buying his love, but out of pure devotion to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who became one of us to save us. And if you're here this morning and you long for a faith like that, if you're here this morning All you have to do is pray, God, if you're there, reveal yourself to me. Or if you're here this morning and all you can pray is, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Then take courage because that is a prayer of faith created in you by God. Take courage that you are praying to a God who said these words, which we've already read. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I. Here am I. This morning, God is speaking to all of us through a story about a baby in a small town in Bethlehem. And this baby was so glorious and so compelling that he could draw a group of men across the desert to himself by simply saying, here am I, here am I. This is the God that came to the Magi. This is the God that came to my dad. And this same Jesus is calling us all to himself this morning, and he is powerful enough to give us the faith to believe, and he's powerful enough to keep us believing throughout our entire lives. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this story about a baby. We're grateful that babies are so ordinary and that parents in humble homes make them even more ordinary. And we're thankful, Father, that your word reminds us and tells us and shows us that this baby was glorious, and that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the eternal begotten Son of the Father, and that he is worthy of our worship, and he is worthy of giving everything to, and he is able and powerful enough, Father, to make us into the people that we all long to be, who love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, God. And yet he was also able to forgive us through his own death and make us um, 
righteous in your sight. We thank you for this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.